Melchizedek, priest of the Most High and King of Righteousness. I'm going to tell you something, though, Raymond. We know how this lesson's going to end. Because in <laughs> Hebrews chapter 5 and in verse 10, the Hebrew writer, whoever he is, in verse 10 says, Called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to explain, seeing that you are dull of hearing. I hope that that does not uh, characterize our audience here uh, tonight, don't you? Well, I do. And, you know, this this is not part of it. It's a very easy discussion, but it opens up questions that people have bantered about for a long period of time. And a lot of folks just don't want to hurt their heads trying to answer questions or even studying to see if there is an answer. And uh, the Bible teaches us to press on into perfection and know as much as we possibly can about the word, not to create an arrogance of our own intellect, but to create a broader picture of all the things that God was doing in prophecy and in the types and the shadows that were in that old law. And not all of those types and shadows were artifacts of the temple sometimes they were activities of men that that uh, portrayed something that would occur when the christ would come and i think that's very important and I, I kept thinking this week as i was looking at this now we're not really talking about somebody that was in jeopardy here other than abraham and lot and all them but it'll be a little break as we take our minds and try to understand what was the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek? And how did his identity fit to that? And it'll be very interesting, I think, if, I th if people want to listen. I think so, too. And, you know, I I would almost guarantee you that uh, very few people even know how to spell Melchizedek. <laughs> so uh, do this for us here tonight. Uh, write Melchizedek down, and this week learn to spell Melchizedek. You know, this is a this is an individual I searched through uh, my uh, computer Bible, have the ability to put a search in there, and you can find exactly how many times a word is used. Melchizedek only 11 times. Uh, one time in the book of Genesis in chapter 14, one time in Psalm 110, and then the rest of them are in Hebrews chapter 5 through 7. And it is so good that we that the Hebrew writer took advantage of talking about Melchizedek because we would know even less about him than we know uh, with with his input, wouldn't we? That's right. And also, that's a very strong argument uh, when you're facing liberal teachers who want to say that Melchizedek is not a real being or a real story, but so much credence was given to it in the New Testament. And uh, some of the passages that we're going to refer to, even Jesus referred to. And I really think if it was just a story and a made-up thing and an impossible thing to understand, that that would have been not someplace the Lord would have went to to prove his sonship, by the way. So it's going to be interesting as we study this. It is. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and go on over to uh, the talking points slide here. We've only got four points that we want to make. We want to go back and we want to look at uh, when Abraham meets Melchizedek. And by the way, this is the first time that Melchizedek is mentioned in the Bible. 
And then uh, we're going to discuss the dignity of Melchizedek and then the order of Melchizedek's priesthood. Now, this will be the bulk, I think, of our study. Mm -hmm. It should. It's point number three. And then Melchizedek as a type of Christ priesthood, which will wrap things up. So, uh, Raymond, if you want to, I'll just let you go ahead and kick this thing off here. Abraham meets Melchizedek. Well, there's a little bit of a history that we've got to look at, and this is Genesis chapter 14, as you see on the point up there. And I'm going to kind of paraphrase part of this. Beginning in verse 1 and working down through verse 13, you read the story of the battle of the nine kings or the destruction of Ketelamur. I don't know. History has several ways that they talk about this, but you had kind of a a war that broke out in that region around the Dead Sea, and the kings from the east, four kings from the east, came down and did battle with five kings in, in, in the south, kind of. And uh, the four kings kind of won it, and they defeated some pretty strong opponents. Some of the people that they defeated, if you look at verse 5, the Rephim and the Imam, these people were later on mentioned in the Scripture, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, as some of the... Um, habitats of Anak, they had giants maybe on their side during this time period. So it was that that chapter is a very active chapter. I mean it's a it's a battle chapter all the way through it. But when when they got down to the valley of Siddim and they were destroying the 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 four the four kings, we note that Sodom and Gomorrah had fled and some fell and they took all the goods. They they were taking the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and guess who was living there? Well, that's where Lot lived, and Lot would be Abraham's brother's son, and that was a whole other story. We talked about that, but uh, one came and escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, and he was dwelling by the terebinth trees of Mamre, and uh, he come up and said, now look, your, your nephew has been taken captive. So Abram heard this, and he armed his 318 trained soldiers or servants. I can only imagine they must have been good fighters because they're going up against the, you know, the militaries of these kings. So, and they go out and they pursue to Dan. He divides up his forces and attacks by night, surprise. And uh, they, they begin to destroy these people that had taken his nephew a lot. And they brought back uh, his, his, all his family member lot, his goods, and the women, the children, and and the king of Sodom went out to meet him, and and people were just lining up, you know, uh, happy that Abram had went out there and saved the day. Well, now we get to chapter uh, fourteen, verse eighteen, and it's just a very interesting moment. Just all of a sudden, this explodes into the narrative and into the history of prophecy, as it were, of even Messiah. And it says, this man, Melchizedek. Now, we'll talk more about the name later on, but he was a king of Salem. Now, this is the future city of Jerusalem. And maybe to give a little bit of a of a history of time here, you know, Abraham lived somewhere in 2000 B.C. David lived somewhere around 1000 B.C. And I lived 2,000 years after uh, in 2000 A.D. So this story goes back 4,000 years. That's a long time back. Yeah. And, and 
Abraham was about 10 generations from Noah. And uh, matter of fact, I want to bring uh, Levi in here because he comes up when we get to Hebrews 7. Uh, Levi would be a great grandson of Abraham. That's going to be an important point to make later on when we talk about him giving the tithe in the priesthood. But Melchizedek, this this strange character, this strange individual, comes out, and the Bible simply says he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed Abraham. And his words were, Blessed be Abram of God Most High. And that shows he had high regard for Abram, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God. But now watch here. He kind of straightens Abram out real quick, Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, he wanted him to know, Abram, yep, 318 men, but you had one other thing on your side. (laughs) You had God on your side. Now, folks, we can defeat anything when God's with us. And he, I believe that to be Abraham, gave him that to be Melchizedek, a tithe of all that he had received in honor. So this begins the initial meeting that we see. Uh, go ahead, Lloyd. And, you know, uh, somebody will say, and, and where we can and when we can, uh, we may not always do this, but you're, you may be asking the question, well, the word Salem is mentioned here in verse 18 of Genesis 14. How do we know that that was Jerusalem? Well, there is a scripture that seems to indicate that, even though everything that we that we read about Salem seems to indicate that. But this one is a little bit in a little bit more detail. In uh, Psalm seventy six and verse two, it says, "In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion." Note that verse and note that there are three uh, locations that are all the same. Salem, Jerusalem, and Zion. They will be used interchangeably throughout the Bible and uh, throughout the New Testament. Now, I don't know why all of those uh, different names. uh, I I know that uh, Salem means peace. And uh, I know that uh, I know that Melchizedek means, uh, you know, that he is a king of righteousness, that he is a king of peace. And uh, we will find whenever we eventually get over into the book of Hebrews, we're going to see that uh, that indeed Jesus Christ is the same thing. He is a God of peace. He is a man of complete and thorough righteousness. And so in that regard, when we look at Melchizedek, we're looking at, as uh, Raymond said a while ago, a type. Well, what is a type? Well, a type is... It It is a representation of something that will... Here's the best way that I can explain it. If you have, and we don't have those any longer, but we used to have old rubber stamps. You remember those, Raymond, where we'd have our I name? Do. And uh, in our library, we would rubber stamp all of our books. Raymond Costello or Loy Milam, we'd put that on all of our books. Well, that rubber stamp is a type of me, a type of you. That stamp that is there... Uh, indicates ownership, that it shows that it belongs to you. And that's what a type in the Bible does. It points to something bigger, something greater. Uh, it is not that thing in and of itself, but it is a representation of that. And really, that's the best way that I can describe Melchizedek, as we will see later, is that he is a perfect representative 
of Christ because he is both priest of the Most High God and he also is the king of righteousness. And you don't find those two uh, put together in the Old Testament, right? You're right. And when you think of the term type, you also sometimes, if you do much study on figures of speech, you'll come up with the word antitype too which means the, the, the real end result. We used to have a printing press in, in the school I went to, and we printed the paper, and it was an old-time press. You had to load all the, the type in, which was always backwards and looked upside down to me, you know. But yeah. w- then when you ran the paper through it, you, know, you, got, you got a printed page, and, and you had the type, and then you had the paper, which was the antitype. It reminds me a lot of what is said about the flood of Noah and baptism. There is also an antitype which now saves us baptism. Right. And he, he compares the salvation act that or salvation elements of baptism to the saving elements of that flood. So we're going to see that this Melchizedek, and we might hasten to say this too. When you take that name Melchizedek and you break it apart into its uh, elements, you have Melech or Melech, which means king, and Tezedek, which means righteousness. And some have even proposed the idea, and I think it's pretty pretty well accurate, that uh, Melchizedek's name might have been more uh, of a picture of his title than it was just of his personal identity. Just like the word Christ, that's not Jesus' name. I've got to be blunt with you. Before I studied much Bible when I was a kid, I would say Jesus Christ. And I thought, well, that's his first name and that's his last name. I did too. But and yeah, I, th- I, I think a lot of people do that, but it is <laughs> yeah. uh, the last it name. The, the the name is descriptive of the of the individual, right? Uh, that's right. And Christ means the anointed one, you know. So so I'm I'm not going to make a big play on that, but I just want people to realize that there's a lot in that name talking about him being a king of righteousness, and then also the king of Salem, which is the king or Shalom, the king of peace. So. It's very interesting that we see two concepts that are would be easy to prove in of Christ later on, as we'll see when we get down to that and we talk about that. Let me bring another point out, and I think that this is a very, very important point, and I think it's a good time for us to uh, uh, to look at it here in Genesis 14, uh, because Abraham has already been selected in uh, chapter 12 of the book of Genesis. And a lot of people don't understand that what God did with the Jewish nation, he didn't cast everybody else off. He needed one individual to start a nation of people through which the family line would eventually produce what the what the Hebrew Old Testament calls uh, the Messiah and what the Greek New Testament calls the Christ. And so he pulled out this one family of Jews, and uh, this family would eventually bring the anointed one, as you said, the Messiah or the Christ. So what happened with everyone else? Well, they continued on with uh, whatever sacrifices that they were supposed to have. We know that uh, Cain and Abel uh, were given instruction on sacrifices, and so they evidently uh, had a protocol on that because Cain's did not please the Lord. So he must have given them instruction and everything. And then even, Raymond, when we get into Acts 10, we see an individual 
that is not a Jew. He is not a proselyte. He is an individual that has continued in this in this uh, old style of worship, if you will, by uh, or to God Almighty, and uh, that is Cornelius. He is a he is a Gentile. But whenever I read about Cornelius, uh, God has great accolades to uh, to shed upon him that he is uh, he is a righteous man. And uh, th- that, you know, he, he prays and God said, I, I'm hearing your prayers. And so understand that God has always stayed connected with those that were not Israel. That is a hard thing, I think, for people to, to, to make the difference between. They think that, uh, he said that God selected Israel. He cast everybody off. And that is just not true, is it, Raymond? No, well... You know, the story of Jonah would be uh, a strong proof of that because he was sent to a nation called the, the Ninevites, Nineveh, and the Assyrians, I'm sorry, but uh, they were not Jewish people at all, and they were told to repent. I think if we would think in terms that from the time of Adam all the way down at least to the time of Moses, God was dealing with the heads of the families. They were offering up sacrifices. I'm talking about the ones that were true to a worship of Jehovah. And what you said brought up a point just right out of the text that we're in. Two men meet. One is the chosen Abram, who's going to carry the seed blessing. And the other is a king of Salem. Uh, I don't know that they ever met each other before. I don't know that. But they both have something in common. They both believed and worshiped the God of the Most High. Right. I mean, that there it is right there. And that's one reason Abraham is so essential to the 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 arguments of Paul, and especially in Galatians 3, and uh, we're children, all children of Abraham, Jew and Gentile, because as his faith was a common faith that God would accept, so is our faith a common faith. It's not, it's not based on the fact, am I a Jew? Am I saved? It's not based on lineage. Am I saved? It's based on, do I believe in the Lord and in Jesus, his Savior, and in the Holy Spirit and in the Word of God? And therein lies the, the really the whole point of this, the whole point of what we're looking at. It does, it does, and and it's going to tie some things in uh, really good when we get down to the order of the priesthood. I told you now we're 24 minutes into this program. Are you getting dull <laughs> hearing? I mean, it is it is a complicated subject. There's no doubt about it. But but it's uh, rich. It's it, very rich. It, it is. It's very rich, and uh, you know. Uh, I guess the overall point that we're trying to make is that God is the God of all people, every nationality, every culture. Uh, and, you know, Peter said that uh, he was convinced that, that anyone who feared God and kept his commandments, that, that he, would, uh, he would be partial to him. He had blessings for that individual. And, uh, you know, you were talking about up until perhaps the time of Moses. Hebrews 1, which we're going to get into in a little bit, uh, opens up in the very first verse, and it said, God, who at sundry times or at different times and in different manners spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. That is the way that God dealt with individuals. Even in the book of Job, Job was not a Jew. Job was a worshiper of God under this old economy, if you will. But that old economy, I, I like to, to make it as a straight line all the way from 
uh, Adam and Eve all the way, if you will, to the cross. And then middle ways are early on that line. Drop a line up under the bottom of it and put Abraham. And then when you get to Christ, let that line come back up to where, uh, once again, God, prior to Abraham, dealt with everybody equally. Then he selected the Israelites, and then they brought the Christ. And once the Christ was born and uh, died and was resurrected, now then it's it's back to uh, the whole culture, everybody, the whole population of humanity is dealt with in the same way. That's just an easy way to explain it. And Melchizedek is a key player to show us that, isn't he? He surely is. And and, and and just for a very few verses from the Old Testament, he occupies a strong argument in the book of Hebrews about the superiority of Messiah, why we need Messiah, yeah. you see. Yeah. Uh, the second point, and I, I guess we've pretty well uh, covered that. And by the way, uh, I see that Don's put something on here that Mayrene Bartley is listening from Signature, Signature uh, Healthcare. Uh, welcome, Mayrene. I'm glad that you're able to get an iPad, and I hope that other people uh, at these nursing homes around, uh, I hope that you will make arrangements for uh, your family that may be shut in like that, because that, that's just a blessing to have those people with us, isn't it, Raymond? It surely is. Yeah. And uh, I re I'm really humbled by the fact that a lot of people, even folks that are sick, and, you know, been through a lot, uh, get a lot out of these programs, and I, I appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, the, the point that the point number two, the dignity of Melchizedek, that was yours. And you and I, and a lot of people don't, th don't know this, but you and I don't talk during the week. Now we share some points <laughs> and that's it. I really, I mean, I've got some ideas of where I think you're going with that. I just left it just the way it was. And so pray tell, what do you mean by the dignity of Melchizedek? Well, I was thinking as I looked on that that little short burst of scripture there in Genesis, if I had to preach Melchizedek's funeral, what would I say in the eulogy? Now, we've already kind of covered the vital statistics of who he was and, and what he did. And first of all, I noticed as I looked at this that he comes out as a servant. He comes out and he brings bread and wine. Now, I actually read some some liberal historians that tried to argue, well, he was just covering his tracks because uh, he didn't want to have to fight <laughs> Abraham. And they tried to make out like he was a pagan king. <laughs> and I just thought, no, man, no, no. But, but there's something in that that really reached out to me because I thought about some of the passages of, of our Lord before he died. How that he brought out the bread and wine, if you'll recall, and and spoke some beautiful spiritual words to his people. You know, this is my body, this is my blood, and and this is one reason that I, I enjoyed taking the Lord's Supper is because it is the Lord serving me, as it were. Well, he comes out with the bread and the wine, and notice notice this dignified way he takes care of his relationship with Abraham. He blesses him. He blesses him. So many times people that call themselves Christians do not act dignified. And they need to act dignified. They need to be above the petty uh, fussing and wrangling that so many people, even religious people, seem to be uh, impressed with. 
and he blessed him. And he and he said in specific terms, blessed be Abram of God. Abram of God, most high. He's talking language. To me, that's what I call gracious language. And he speaks of God's grace. And he said, Abram, because of uh, you being of God most high, you you are like a possessor of heaven and earth. And I and I thought about that verse, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the heaven, the earth, you know. And I, I realize what's being said here. Everything in your life, Abram, is a gift from God. And I'm recognizing that I'm in the presence of a, a great and good man. Matter of fact, you know, the writer of Hebrews will argue that Melchizedek was greater because he took the tithe. But look how he's reaching out to Abram and reminding him of what God has done for him. Now, he's appointed by God. There, He, he is in a, a priesthood that's not based on lineage as far as I can tell. And as a priest of God, uh, I believe the Spirit of God or Spirit of Christ, literally, you know, there's a text in 1 Peter 2 that speaks about the Spirit of the Lord that was in prophets and great men of, of the Old Testament. And, you know, 1 Peter 2 says this, that we're a kingdom of priests. Let me ask you, as if we are a kingdom of priests and we all have a priesthood to render to through Jesus Christ to the Father, what is the sacrifice that we bring? Well, we bring, obviously, our connection to the sacrifice of, of the most gracious being that ever lived, that is our Savior, Jesus Christ. But as Romans 12 teaches, we also present a living sacrifice ourselves. Not only the blood of Christ, which procures our salvation, but our own lives. And we lay them down, just like Abraham was willing to lay his down. And we become gracious people. And if somebody could just say, when we leave this old earth, this was a dignified son or daughter of God who was an encourager, who was an encourager, who was someone that said great and good words to the people around them. And Abraham recognized him. The giving of that tithe was an important action. But that's what I was after in that when I thought about the dignity of Melchizedek in that moment. Because Remember something. He is a type of who? He's a type of Jesus Christ. Christ. Yes. I'm a Christian. I am a Christian. So my actions, my behavior, people are, as we've said this many times in a sermon, we're the Bible the whole world reads. Well, if I'm undignified, if I am someone that's more of a critic than an encourager, if I am someone that doesn't really have a deep abiding faith in God most high, then what am I portraying to the world? You see, yeah. I want to portray the dignity of divinity to the world, even though I can't attain divinity myself, but I want to adorn the gospel and hold it forth with a heart that respects every bit of it. And by the way, all lives matter, people. Yeah. All lives matter. Yeah. yeah. And when we look at the character of, uh, of this individual, he's a priest, he's a king. And I guess by right, he could have approached Abraham and said, I'm a priest and I'm a king, and you owe me 10% of what you have gained back. Right. He, did, he didn't do that. He did it in a very humble way. But as you have so eloquently said, he gave all of the glory to God. He told Abraham, <laughs> he said, you are able to do this, not because of your soldiers, 
but because God the Most High delivered these kings of Mesopotamia into your hand, and you were able to to rescue Lot and rescue the things. And uh, we just see a, a humility between two, and really in, in biblical history, standing where we are and looking back, these are two powerful people right here. Right. These, these two guys right here stand at the very top of the heap, and yet look at their humility. Look at the humility that they have. Uh, Melchizedek is approaching Abraham, and he's saying, uh, you are so blessed that God has done this for you. And then Abraham responds by saying, let me give you a tenth of what God has allowed me to get. And we just see the dignity, as you point out here, and, and the humility. I just didn't know if you were going somewhere else with that that I wasn't aware of. No, I want to add one other thing and just an observation. Uh, you see Abraham going up against kings and defeating kings. Well, obviously, Melchizedek knows this man, you know, if he waged war with me, it would not, it might not be one I could win. Can you imagine what would happen in this world today if the political world and the religious world both approached each other dignified with a common belief in the great God on, on high? Can you imagine what it would be like? And, and I will tell you something that none of us would be able to offer a, a good argument against. And, and I, I'm expanding this now to all religions. If all religions of all men, even though the ones, lot, many of them I don't agree with, obviously, but if the people were dignified and loving and respectful, it would be very hard to fight the doctrines because people would be enamored with the behaviors. And this is what bothers me. So many times people that have the truth shoot themselves in the foot because they're not dignified. And they don't give God the glory. It's that simple. Uh, yeah, especially in this day and age. I mean, it's, yes, it's, yes. Worse, it's worse than we've ever seen. Ever you seen know, I, under, I understand a little bit more now why Solomon said there's nothing new under the sun. The things that were are the things that will be, you know. And That's true. we see that being played out in our life. So the order of Melchizedek's priesthood, this is the meat of our subject right here. And we begin in Psalm 110. I want to read the first four verses. I may go Please. ahead and read the other ones as well. <laughs> Jehovah said unto my Lord. Now, remember, this is a psalm of David. David wrote 73 psalms, and this is one of them. Je Jehovah said unto my Lord, Set thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Jehovah will send forth the rod of thy strength out of Zion. Rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. Now, we said a while ago that Zion is equivalent with, uh, I'm hearing a popping. I don't know what that is. It is. I the, heard it for a minute, yeah. Yeah, it is the equivalent of uh, of uh, Jerusalem. It is the equivalent of uh, Salem as well. He says, thy people offer themselves willingly in the day of thy poverty in holy array. Out of the womb of the morning thou hast the dew of thy youth. Jehovah has sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, there is absolutely no doubt that David is talking about Jesus Christ, that David is looking at, he said, 
the Lord said unto my Lord, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Peter made that point in his sermon at uh, Pentecost in Acts 2, right? He did, yes. And Jesus also uh, laid claim to these verses too in Matthew 22. Um, and I think that's important because if the Lord laid claim to these thoughts himself, then to me that's the strongest argument to, besides the fact that we know some of the apostles mentioned it and also um, David mentioned it. Do you remember in Psalms, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, when the Pharisees were gathered together and Jesus said, uh, what do you think about the Christ whose son is he? And they said, well, son of David. Well, how then does David in the spirit, now he brings the Holy Spirit into it, call him Lord? Call who Lord? Well, the son of God. Right. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Then he said, if David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Well, the answer is he was living right then when he said it. Right. You know. So no one was able to answer him a word. Now, that goes back to what you said in the beginning of our lesson in Hebrews 5. If we don't study and we get dull and hard of hearing, there's a whole lot we could learn, but we're not. even if we hear it, we're not going to learn it. <laughs> so these people heard it and didn't learn it. So, uh, you know, so but Jesus laid claim to that. And we've got to grasp the fact that not only was he laying claim to uh, the, the some of the parts there about um, – the Lord said to my Lord there in the first few verses, but he's also by virtue of the fact that David continues talking about the order of Melchizedek, he's connected to that too. So this whole thing is pulled into a description of Messiah, both by the Lord himself and the apostles. And the prophecy using uh, the, the office of Melchizedek, he's saying you, uh, you're a priest forever. And your order is after the same order as Melchizedek, and uh, which involves what, Raymond? Okay, I looked up the word order and uh, <clears throat> to try to better understand what order meant. And now I'm, <clears throat> I'm doing this from the Hebrew. Uh, the Greek has a, a little bit different uh, word for it, but the, the Hebrew <clears throat> had the word a cause, a reason, and a manner. And there was a cause for the uh, order of Melchizedek, and it's not really plainly evident unless you study Hebrews 7. He was to be a type. He was made like the Son of God. And uh, there's a reason for that priesthood to prove that the priest that would come later on would be a priest of all men, not just the priest that was tied into the lineage of the Levites. And the manner that he executed was not only involved with being a priest, but was involved with being a king, which was unheard of to be a priest king. And one of the things I would like to say, I've had some people say, well, without lineage meant very simply that Melchizedek was eternal. Not necessarily. The Lord had two lineages mentioned in the New Testament, and he's eternal. Right. So he had a lineage, and he was eternal. So I don't think that argument holds up at all, trying to maybe prove the, the view that Jesus and Melchizedek were one and the same. I'm talking about based on lineage. But the order, first of all, is important. And before we even really look at identity, the key thing is the order of the priesthood, the likeness or the official dignity of the priesthood that both had as it was separated from the Levitical priesthood, you see. Right. Now, that's the key point. The key point in 
in everything that uh, the book of Hebrews is going to say, and maybe this helps our listeners, the book of Hebrews is a book that shows the superiority of Jesus. It begins Amen. by saying he is greater than the angels. And then he his law is greater than the law of Moses. And then they will eventually, the writer will eventually get into the priesthood of Levi. And, and he will say the priesthood of Jesus is uh, no doubt greater than the priesthood of uh, uh, of that of Levi and of the Old Testament uh, priests there. L- let me read out of Hebrews 5. Uh, this, yes, that's where I that's where I turn to. <laughs> okay, uh, I want you to listen to the language that is used. I'm in chapter five of the book of Hebrews, and I'm I'm going to look at verse five first. I know that we have verse six down in verse ten, but I want to look at verse five first. The Hebrew writer says, "So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son." This day I have begotten thee. Now that harkens back to Psalm 2. It harkens back to Psalm 110. We know that we're talking about Jesus. And at the baptism of Jesus, God said that, uh, that you are my son. And, uh, you know, this day I have begotten you. In verse 6, he said, he said in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now that is Psalm 110 that we have just read about. And he said in verse 10 then, what we read to open up the program, that this Melchizedek was, or that Christ was called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. I want you to look at the humility that shows the comparison between Melchizedek. We've already talked about his dignity. We've also Mm -hmm. already talked about his character. We talked about his humility. That same humility was in Christ. He didn't come here to be a high priest. That is not, was not on his agenda to do that, even though it was in the plan of God. And that takes a lot of humility in order to do that. And Melchizedek had it and Christ had it. But he said he was called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he goes on to say, We've got a lot of things to say about him that are hard to understand since you have become dull of hearing. And we're 45 minutes in the program, and I sure hope you're not dull of hearing. Go ahead, Ray. I do want to add one other thing uh, about the phrase, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As we've already noted, now it was said in Psalms and also said at his baptism, but it was also said in another place where Jesus is portrayed as being resurrected from the dead. And that's in Acts 13, verse 33. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm. And he says, and it's kind of an odd quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead to no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Now, the reason I want to read that to you, another thing that, connects, I think, Jesus back to Melchizedek. Melchizedek, and as we're going to see the argument made, no beginning, no end, and and nobody knows when he was called by God to be a high priest or a priest. But Jesus is priest by virtue of the fact that when he was raised from the grave, remember what he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and 
on earth. Yeah, Matthew 28, so it, 18. Yes, so, yeah. so we see that the culmination of this, when we finally see him as the great prophet, the great priest, and the great king, was when he came forth in triumph out of the, out of the grave, defeating death, having done all the work God had given him to do, and he ascends back to heaven after the 40 days, sets down at the right hand of God now to reign in his kingdom as prophet, priest, and king, even as some of the prophecies out of the book of Zechariah portrayed that he would. So this is this is powerful. I mean, this is faith-building material right here. It is. And, faith, and, 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 yeah. the, and the point that the Hebrew writer is trying to make here in chapter 6 is not only the humility, humility, but the dignity and the power that really that Christ has and the hope that you and I have in him, no matter what comes our way in this life. And everything is so uncertain now as it has been in, to every other generation. Uh, but he says in verse 19, and this is, this is, is chained to Melchizedek. It's linked to Christ himself. He said, we, uh, which hope that we have is an anchor for our soul, both sure and steadfast, which entereth into uh, within the veil. In other words, whenever the uh, high priest once a year could go into the veil, he was the only person that could do that. But he said, whether the forerunner is for us entered, and that is Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What the Hebrew writer is trying to get us to understand is, is that we have a representative that is sitting at the right hand of God right now. He is intervening for us. He knows what we're going through. And if you go back to Psalm 2, he is very much active in this world with all of the leaders, with all of the nations. Uh, he's, he's not some far-removed uh, Messiah. He is a king. He is a priest. And he is doing all of those things for us and on our behalf. Well, you know, as we move now to the next point, um, and really, I guess it's kind of a summation of what we've been saying. He is a type of the priesthood of Christ. And one of the things that I want to say here, as Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Now, why would I even say that? Because the writer of the book of Hebrews in chapter 7 Indicates that. Yes. Because he received the tenth of the spoils. And if you go on down in verse 7, now beyond all contradiction. Now, some people might want to contradict a lot of things about the scriptures, but he said the lesser is blessed by the better or the greater. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. That's interesting, too. Matter of fact, that's one of the reasons that people have had a concept that Melchizedek was something beyond a mere man, but that's another point. Yeah, just a but concept, he, not a real individual, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak. Now, I'd made a point earlier in the lesson that Levi was a great-grandson of Abraham, if I've got my genealogy right on the matter. but So he hadn't been born yet. He was still in the loins of Abraham. He had not become a child yet. But what what the writer is trying to get across as we look at the priesthood of Christ and compared to the priesthood of the Levites, the Levites paved tithes as a symbol that um, 
uh, Melchizedek was greater than them in the person of Abraham. Right. Well, Jesus is considered after the order of Melchizedek. So at 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 the least, at the least, he still has to be greater than the Levite priesthood, even if the law had changed. And let's he make still, yeah, yeah. Let's make sure because we don't know the uh, we don't know the magnitude of the knowledge of everybody that's listening to us. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and whenever they came into the land of Canaan, all of that land was allotted out to each of the tribes, except Levi. Levi got no land at all, but they were the priests, and they were supported by the 10% from all of these other tribes. And it was their duty to uh, facilitate at the tabernacle and later at the temple, and they they were the priest tribe. That's what they were. They were the, the tribe behind everything associated with Judaism. And so what Raymond is saying is, is that Melchizedek, because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, Levi was in his loins at the time. And he made the point. He said it, there is no contradiction here. The less is blessed by the better. And so by way of Abram paying this, uh, Levi being in his loins not yet born, obviously Melchizedek is greater than the Levitical priesthood. His priesthood is greater. And so he's saying Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So there's no contradiction. This is a greater priesthood than the Old Testament priesthood was, right? I believe that to be so. And as a matter of fact, that question had been brought to Christ at an earlier time over in the book of John when the Lord was was speaking about, um, well, about I'm really about his divinity and about him being from the Father. And if you'll recall in John 8, verse 52, the Jews said, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Then notice what he said. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? Well, the short answer is yes. And the prophets that are dead? Yes. Who do you make yourself out to be? Well, see, later on, the writer of Hebrews 7 is going to prove he is the great prophet, priest, and king after the order of Melchizedek, who was greater than all of the other prophets, priests, and kings that ever lived. Yeah. So, so technically, they ask they ask a great question. They just didn't get the answer till later on. Yeah, and they didn't get the answer that they wanted either. Uh, no, they of. didn't. And you know, you brought up John eight. There is a passage there in verse fifty six, where in this in this argument that uh, Jesus is having with him, he said, "Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and he was glad." I think that he's looking back at this very moment right here. Uh, of the priesthood. Now, I know that there are some people that say Melchizedek was the pre-incarnate Christ. I don't believe that because Hebrews 7 and verse 3 is which where we're at right now. He says uh, about Melchizedek, he without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor the end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abides a priest continually. Now, if this was Jesus pre-incarnate, in other words, if this was an appearance of Jesus in this form of Melchizedek, I don't think he would have said that. This was a real priest. This was a, a real man, but he is a type. He is a forerunner uh, showing this priesthood that, uh, and how, how, how would you explain then uh, without father, without mother, and all of that in verse 3, Raymond? 
Well, no known genealogy is really what that's about. And remember, the Jewish people were big on genealogies. Had to that be. They, yeah, well, they tied themselves back to Abraham. Yeah. You know, they, they, you know, we are Abraham's seed in John 8. That was one of the arguments that they had been making. Well, all of a sudden, uh, here in the book of Hebrews, you bring up a man that you can't connect to Abraham or anybody. And to them, he would have been kind of a, well, uh, they don't know what. He, he would have just been outside the fold. He wouldn't have been somebody they would have given credence to. And yet this man was held up as, a, as, a, as an emblem of one that was greater than even Abraham, at least at that point in reference to relationship to God. And, you know, there, that is a strong point that's made there on made like. Uh, the phrase there means to resemble, to picture, to have a likeness to, to be comparable to. The, the problem that we have as we study back on that, and I've noticed this in my studies on it, um, there was no divine presence indicated in the story of Melchizedek. And uh, in either what we have is we're having Jesus succeeding a, a, a Melchizedek and, and taking up a new priesthood after his order, or is trying to say he is the same person. And I still think there's a, a strong way to come to grips with this picture. As a matter of fact, that allows me to say something here. At the time of the writing of the Bible, prior to, I almost say a century before the, the, uh, the Bible we have was even be, begun to, put, to be put together, they found um, pieces of the um, Dead Sea Scrolls that contained information yeah. of the Midrash, they call it, interpretations that those scribes were writing. And one was about the, the scroll of, of Melchizedek. And it had some strange stuff on it. I tried to read through on that. Uh, and some of the other views that people had, they, they thought Melchizedek was the original man that Adam was patterned after, or they thought he was uh, Shem, Noah's son, reincarnate, or Michael, the archangel. And, and I've been studying a lot on this Christophany-type thing, pre-incarnate uh, images of Christ in the, in the old Bible. And there are some places where, you know, I've got a lot of questions I've got to ask. But right now, I think what we're talking about, what we need to talk about is not identity here, but order. Right. The order and, and, and the result of what that order did to the Levitical picture of the priesthood. Yeah. Because this was the issue. And this was the issue. And what the writer, what the writer's talking about is that order. That order is greater because when a priest died under the Levitical order, uh, somebody took his place. Somebody in the family line of Levi took his place. But with Melchizedek, he didn't receive this priesthood from someone, and he didn't give this priesthood to someone. That's right. And it is the same with Christ. He did not receive this priesthood from anybody associated with Levi. In fact, he was greater because Levi actually paid tithes through the person, uh, through his great-grandfather, Abraham. And so uh, he didn't receive that priesthood, but even more than that, he will not give this priesthood up to anybody because that priesthood is eternal. Now, what is a priest? A priest is someone that goes to God on our behalf, and Christ will always do that. That will never end, and that's a great lesson that we can gain from this. And we've only got a couple of minutes. We'll probably, I guess, want we'll to get into some maybe two or three lessons that uh, we could share with people over this 
it's a complicated study that we understand now why the Hebrew writer said, uh, you know, there's more I'd like to say, but uh, I see that you're, <laughs> I see that you're not. I've got two off. pages more notes. <laughs> I do too. <laughs> yeah. But, but what, what about some lessons, just some practical lessons that everybody can take away on this lesson here tonight? I would like, I'd like to give this one. It came to me while you were speaking. You know, Melchizedek received his appointment as a priest by God. No man involved in that. Christ received his appointment of God. Matter of fact, if you go through and read about Paul called to be an apostle, uh, he was called by God to be one. I mean, uh, as a Christian, look, I'm not a Christian because some man touched me in baptism. That's not why I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian because God gave that privilege to me as I believed and obeyed the gospel. And therefore, I don't stand. Paul himself one time said, he said, we have no dominion over your faith. In other words, your faith is between you and the Lord God Almighty. And each one of us has become a priest, male and female. And that priesthood that we share, that, that uh, kingdom of priests, we need to realize every day of our lives, our, our relationship to God is not based on what that preacher up there is doing. It's based on what the Lord is doing, what Christ is doing, what the Word is doing, what the Spirit is doing, what God the Father is doing. And how I'm responding to what they're doing, and we need we need to ramp it up and aim a little higher in how we view our relationship to God. I, I think that's very critical in this study. And I think an, another point is uh, is that yes, we are priests under our high priest Christ, who that's is right. after that's the right. order of Melchizedek. That's a high office. That is a high calling. Don't you think that we ought to be acting in that way with our life? Don't you think that we ought to understand the great calling that we have, that we are priests? Well, what is a priest? It is someone that goes to God for individuals. And so we do that. We we approach people and we try to bring them the gospel. We pray to God that their illnesses, that their problems will be solved. There is a lot of work that goes into being a priest, and there it's a high calling. There's no doubt about it. And, uh, you know, we, we need to understand that our loyalties lie with God, but also Amen. our loyalties lie with this office, this wonderful office that he's given to each and every one of us, that we're priests under Christ, who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Anything else, Raymond? One other thing, Lori, I'd just like to add this to it. Sometimes we we look at these magnificent stories in the scriptures and we think, you know, how did those fellas get in that position uh, to be an Abraham, to be, to be a Melchizedek, to be an Apostle Paul or whatever? Let me tell you, the key thing is this. You live for the Lord. You live for God. And you will be in the right place. And there will come a right time in your life for something really wonderful to be done through you. And there's too many of us, we, we go, ho-hum, I guess I'm just a Christian. Oh, well, I'm just a Christian. I've just got to tough this out till I die and go to heaven. And th there, it should be the most exciting life we could have on this earth, just, just doing what God says. And as you said, staying loyal to God and just looking forward to that time when he does something wonderful through us. Something great. Yep. Remember Romans 8 and verse 28, every day of your life. He said, for we know. He didn't say, we think, you know, that this is the case. He didn't, he didn't say, 
uh, I suspect, he said, we know that all things, A-L-L, all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them who are called according to his purpose. God works in your life, and so many times we don't know what he's doing. We don't know what he's trying to accomplish in our life. We just have to continually be faithful to him, be faithful to our office as Christians and as priests under Christ, and just live our lives out and let that plan work. You will never know until we get to the other side of this life and into eternity. We'll be able to look back and say, oh, I see. I see why these days were so important for me 